the thing that was different about us in the beginning is that we were going to very rigorously do narrative. And, and in the most old-fashioned sense of there would be a story with a character or characters, there would be a plot, the plot would unfold, there'd be surprising turns to the plot, it would drive at ideas, but like it just has to lead to some thought. And so we don't pick up an issue unless we can find narrative. Hey, Lisa. Do you recognize that voice by chance? (laughs) Abby, I think everyone recognizes that voice. That is Ira Glass, the creator, host, and producer of the radio show This American Life. Bingo. Welcome to On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright, Executive Director of the Professional Prizes Department at Columbia Journalism School. I am joined today, as always, by my friend and colleague, DuPont Director Lisa R. Cohen. Hi, Lisa. Hello, Abby. So, as you might have guessed, this episode is from The Vault, the On Assignment Vault, featuring the man behind one of radio's most recognizable voices, Ira Glass. In 2019, Abby and I had the opportunity to interview Ira in his studio. We actually went down, took a field trip, and we got into the booth with him. He had just won his seventh DuPont for Our Town, a two-part This American Life series that took an intensely granular look at the effects of immigration on a small town in Alabama. And right off the bat, in our interview, his unique sense of humor shined through. Honestly, people who where something amazing happens to them and they can't tell the story, those people should die. <laughs> they are the bane of my existence. It's and going. that's based on having spent thousands of hours of your life trying to get them to tell their story? That's based on me just trying to amuse you by saying these extreme <laughs> things that I don't believe okay. at all. <laughs> okay. So let's start at the beginning, yeah? Yeah. We are replaying this interview with Ira again now because we are in the thick of DuPont judging season here at the Journalism School. And a growing number of our submissions that the jury will soon deliberate were clearly inspired by the story ideals Ira piloted at This American Life in the 1990s. That's right. There are more and more of these narrative shows modeled after This American Life. Uh, And our jurors, really all journalists out there and here at Columbia, have been pushed to really reconsider what makes for a good audio story and how to create compelling narratives with tape in new inventive ways, all of which Ira talks about in this conversation. So this is an edited version of the conversation that we had with Ira back in 2019. And throughout this episode, you'll also hear bits and pieces of the commencement speech he delivered to Columbia Journalism graduates in 2018. Thank you, Dean, faculty, parents, my new colleagues. Look at you. Welcome to the next phase of your life, new colleagues. It's going to be amazing. There's a war in this country over facts and truth. It's not clear how it's going to play out. You're going to the front lines. I know those are words every parent wants to hear. You are, in a sense, sort of the godfather of this golden podcasting era that we're in, right? I mean, many people attribute or credit you with launching thousands of programs and podcasts. And and I think it's factually inaccurate. Like, I will (laughs) say, like, there's a very strong 
counter-strain in podcasting among the most popular podcasts. I mean, when you look at the ones that get millions of downloads, which is all the people who heard Howard Stern, um, who's such a wonderful interviewer, and, like, that show was so, like, iconically genre-creating. Like, there's a, there's a whole, like, world of people doing, like, really great podcasts that people love that are totally built on very different principles. Right, but those are interview shows as opposed to they're not as much documentary. They're not. No, no, no. I feel like when it comes to, like, the form of documentary and all the true crime stuff and the knockoffs, like, all that has come from, like, This American Life and Serial, for sure. And we we created a genre that has been widely imitated. And can I say, by lots of people improved. Like, Radio Lab, much better produced show than ours. God knows, you know? But I guess I wonder, 24 years in, I mean, I'm curious to talk a little bit about these times that we're in, which you addressed in your remarks to the graduating class. But it's different. It's a little, the atmosphere is different for this kind of work in 2019 than it was in 2009. Or, I, or is it? I mean, is there a different sense of urgency from a journalistic perspective? Yes, of course. So like we're living in an era where journalists like us are being labeled enemies of the people, and where um, there's an entire non-fact-based counter-narrative being pushed at all times by right-wing media and by the president of the United States. I mean, like, I feel like the part of me that's a straight reporter feels like a little like weird saying that, but but, it, but about the president of the United States. But it's it's you know documentable proof, but documentable like he says a lot of things that aren't true. And so you know, obviously politicians always did, but it's just at a very new level. And then the fact that that uh, that anything that happens gets there are basically two powerful narratives going forward the fact based narrative that those of us in the mainstream media are doing and then the non fact based narrative that it's being done by the right wing media um and you know by the president and his allies like it just is a very different information environment um yeah of course and 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 an upsetting one I'm alarmed at the amount of non-factual material that's out there and how gleefully it is generated and how exciting it is to read and pass around. And I know everybody in this room is very familiar with all this, but I just want to say I'm disturbed. Does that influence the kind of themes that you guys take up or how does that, how does that impact the work inside here? Well, it's interesting. When President Trump got elected, like we, like I really thought, like, do we need to rethink things in a, in a fundamental way? And um, and in fact, what what it's what it's turned out to be is it's the same as it always was. I mean, it, it, like like we'll, we want to take on the issues that are in the news because we're interested in them. But finding an angle in where you can do narrative um, is. Uh, you know, it's, it's it was a challenge before, and it's a challenge now, and and it's it feels very much like the same process and the same challenge. Um, you know, like what what can we do about immigration that everyone else is not already done that will add something to people's understanding? And that was one of our winners this year, actually, our town. Yeah, and and our town really came out of like a saying, like what can we do that would make a contribution, and 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 the and the premise of what we did was. You know, we hear these arguments over and over and like, you know, the right says immigration does this. The left says immigration does this. Let's just go to a place where it happened and just see who's right. And then we found a town and, and partly we found that town because of Jeff Sessions, who had been the leader of anti-immigration policy in the country before the president came on the scene so forcefully. 
why does he believe what he believes? And he talked about seeing, you know, chicken plants coming into these towns, and we're just like, great, let's find let's find a, a town that got where the chicken plants were. Uh, undocumented people came in and took over their jobs. Let's find the town where it happened the most. And this was one of the two or three towns in Alabama. We're great, great. Let's go to that one. That seems to be what he's talking about. And then we just tried to document what happened when a town a town went from being nearly all white to being between a fourth and a third, depending on which year, like undocu- uh, mostly undocumented people. We were just listening to parts of it. I mean, it's interesting how everyone attributed these crime statistics to the new new or more recent arrivals to the town when, in fact, it was there was a lot more to that part of the story, right? Right, right. But I talked to John Siggers, who's the commander of the Drug Enforcement Unit for the county Alberville's in, Marshall County, and was an Alberville police officer from 1997 to 2007, right in the middle of the period that we're talking about. And I asked him about all that extra crime. Are most of the drug arrests Latinos? No. No, absolutely not. Um, most of the meth possession cases are, I would say, 90-something percent uh, Caucasian. And what about the property crime cases in town? That's, that would be Caucasian. The thing about these stories that win awards from DuPont is that they are a perfect or wonderful marriage of storytelling and journalism, which is a really hard thing to do Um, because we talk about three main qualifications for DuPonts, which typically are there's a public service component, there's original reporting, and there's a strong narrative or story. Yeah. So how... I mean, that, that's hard to do, right? This is something that journalists struggle with all the time, where you, you end up writing about an issue and not about, you know, uh, there's no story, it's an issue. But you yes. should be writing a story instead of an issue. Or you have a great tale, but it doesn't really go beyond that. Yeah. There's no, there's yeah. no right. greater An incredible story. yarn, but there's no information yeah. <laughs> in the yarn. Um, so how do, you, how do you balance those things here? You know, like This American Life and then the shows which have spun off from us, like Serial and S-Town and the other podcasts that we're developing. Like the premise is that it's going to be narrative. That's just the thing that was different about us in the beginning is that we were going to very rigorously do narrative. And and in the most old-fashioned sense of there would be a story with a character or characters, there would be a plot, the plot would unfold, there'd be surprising turns to the plot, it would drive at ideas, but... Honestly, the ideas could be public service ideas, but they really could just be like something that somebody learns from a particular experience in their life. Like it just has to lead to some thought. And so we don't pick up an issue unless we can find narrative, you know. So it's important to have narrative. That's your mission. How important is it for the narrative to be about something? Like, for example, the Zoe Chase story that won a DuPont a couple of years ago that was, who's you know, well, I know anyone at this party, yeah. which took on politics and immigration, and it's an important issue, found a story. The reason Somalis came to St. Cloud is because there was civil war and famine in Somalia 25 years ago, which forced people into refugee camps, mostly in Kenya. The U.S. government contracts with different nonprofits that specialize in refugee resettlement. One of those is based in St. Paul, with an office in St. Cloud. And so a lot of the refugees end up in towns and cities in Minnesota after years spent in a camp. The Aces Bar Town Hall back in 2015 felt like a dress rehearsal of the anti-immigration feelings that fueled the Trump campaign. They were calling for the Muslim ban before he was. 
I guess it's like a chicken and an egg question. I mean, are you concerned about doing this, the issues and finding stories to tell them, or is it just... Well, the thing in our format is that we don't have to do a story with, about a bigger issue. Some of my favorite stories we do, like like there's no there's no bigger social meaning to it. You know, Kurt Brownell or, you know, an interview that I did years ago where he and his girlfriend who they're going to get married, but they're like, before we get married, we've been together since we were teenagers and I haven't really slept with that many people. And so let's just have a room springer where we take a break for a month and we just sleep with as many people as we can. Then we'll get back together and get married. And then mayhem ensues. Like it's really like the plot of a Judd Apatow film. And I feel like there's no, you know, there's no redeeming social merit in that story other than it's really fascinating and it documents people alive in this moment. And just like that's it. it we're a documentary show, you know, and we're not going to apply to the DuPonts with that. Like right. that's not going to win. Um, but 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 a story like that is pleasing. And I think that um, and it and it just documents something about being in love and being in a relationship and, and with an amazing plot and many funny moments. And like, it's applying the tools of journalism to a story so small and personal that that journalists traditionally would not have touched it. But it's, it's within our mission. So you don't have to have a bigger issue to your stories, but do you have any sense of, well, this is a mix we want to have, or we have some sense of wanting to address the big issues of the day? Um, we we definitely do. I mean, it, it's not very well thought out, is the truth. Like, it really is just like a bunch of people just thinking, like, what would amuse us to put on the radio? And we're interested in the news and what's going on. Yeah. Honestly, it is not more sophisticated than that. I think most people get tired of watching the news and want to think about something else. We do, too. And, and I feel like our audience definitely wants us to do a mix. Right. Um, and, and we want stuff. We want a mix of, like, serious stuff and funny stuff, too. Can we talk a little bit about collaboration? Because we had Zoe on the show, and about 10 times in the course of talking to her, she hit the line of, like, you have to – what it's all about is collaboration. That yeah. That's what we do here, that this shop is just huge on that. And in your speech, you talked about it. And how important is it? Why is it so important? I mean, I have to say, like, like it's possible to do journalism without having great collaborators. It's hard. Like, And, and I think most people – have the experience that I had when I was at NPR, which was 17 years, which is, you know, you have an editor. Generally, most editors are decent. And then you then you, there's a smaller percentage that will make your work better every time. And then a much smaller percentage will make your work worse every time. But here, the way we do it is that, um, you know, at each stage of the process, you're, you're working with somebody else. Like, in addition to having, like, somebody who's your editor, like, as soon as you get a draft together... Um, you know, you play it for like a small group of people and they give you notes and then you go off and revise and you play it for a slightly larger group of people. Like basically on each edit, we want to bring in at least one or two people who have never heard the story and don't know anything about it to give to give notes. And um, and there's just like a lot of back and forth, a lot of figuring stuff out, um, a lot of decisions made made together. Is that hard sometimes? I mean, you have to get used to just having tons of feedback and input and criticism, basically, of your work. But you have to be really open and receptive to that, I guess, and not be... It is hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. <laughs> Everyone's a critic. No. I mean, that's why you have to they're trust so good. The process. Yeah. You have to trust the process. I don't know. Like, I have to say, like, I, I feel very aware of, like, last week, the, the stories that I was doing. I had two stories in the show, and I was so... I, I don't know why. I felt so defensive with everybody... And so I, I feel like I'm being such a bad boss at this right now, you know. But sometimes you just don't want to. You just don't want more notes. 
you're just like, okay, really, aren't we done? Isn't it good? And then people are like, mm, more, That's so fix funny because you're the boss. You're uh, the one who's supposed to be giving all the notes, but no, everybody's giving notes to you too. Yeah. It's one of the things I think that makes it hard because I feel like I have to turn off the part of myself where, where usually I am giving the notes. And like I feel like, oh, wait, I, just, I have to like really – it's hard. I'm, I'm, I'm working on doing a better job of it. So right now, but can I say that it's making it sound awful. Like I have to. It's the thing that makes people want to work here is the quality of the editing, you know. And uh, well, just as just so that you you bring that up, um, you talk in the speech. You make a very very impassioned plea for editors, and that that's yeah. the most important. Well, maybe not the most important, but it's equally as important as reporting. Yes. Editing, I believe, does not get the respect that it deserves. Editing is crucial in my experience because in my experience, any story that you're trying to make, what, what you want is for the story to be amazing, but what the story wants to be is mediocre or worse. And the entire process of making the story is convincing the story to not be what it wants to be, which is bad. And like turning it slowly from the bad thing it's trying to be, where the sources are inarticulate and you don't know how to structure it and the structure you make doesn't work into this shining, gleaming jewel that you have in your heart. That is editing. How do you become an editor? I thought that's what reporters do. They report and then they end up turning into editors. Is that... Is there another way to do it? I have no idea. I don't know. I, I, don't, I, I really don't. I feel like I have no expert on that. I don't know. You guys run a journalism school. <laughs> like you tell me. I have no idea how people come. Like like certain people, like uh, we have a couple people on staff who, who would definitely prefer to be editors, but most of them also want to be on the air and make their own stories. Um, I've always really enjoyed both. I'm, I'm way more talented as an editor than I am as a reporter. Like it just comes so much more easily to me. Every, everything about editing came easily to me from the beginning. Everything about reporting took years. So we have different definitions of editor. I mean, we both come from a video background and an editor to us is someone who sits and works the, the puts footage the, when you're the done. Production. Yeah, oh, that's yeah, so interesting. Yeah. No, but no, no, you're no. not talking about that. No, I'm talking about editor in the way we do in radio and in print where the where where the editor is sort of like the person who you report to as a reporter and then that's the person who like they talk to you about what what tape you're going to get before you go out. You know, they talk to you about the structure of the story before you go out. They talk to you about what did you get? What's any good when you come back with the tape? Um, and help you think through the structure of what it's going to be, things like that. They're, they're, they're your collaborator. When you're good at being an editor, is it because you sort of want someone to come to you with something already done so you can then fix it? It's certainly easier, but often that isn't how it works. You know, you're talking to people from the very beginning about, about what will the story be, what tape do you want to get, what would make this the very best version of what yeah. it is before you get the tape. So we were just talking about this very situation where before you go out in the field... Do you go in the field with an open mind and get what you get and bring it back and sort it out? Or do you go out in the field with a specific, with a very targeted idea in mind? I mean, there are certain stories, for sure, where you don't know what you're going to get. Absolutely. But I think in general, on most reporting that you end up doing, you, you, you can anticipate the shape of what the story should be or could be. And, and, and you go out with an outline in your head of like, I'm going to need this and this and this and this and this for the story to work. Because you're going to have to make the outline eventually, you know what I mean? And if you make it after you get the tape, then you can realize like, oh, I should have gotten some, them to respond to this question, which is a key question to the whole thing. So we very much 
always try to go out with a set of questions and, and like not just a set of questions, but a set of questions that follows the structure of the story. And since we're doing narrative, it's like we know we need these beats of the story when these things happen to the person. We need them to really explain the feelings and, and, and the details of these different moments. Um, but I have to say all the time, you know, we, you know, so the reporter goes out with that and then we find out, okay, that story isn't true or isn't what we thought it was. And then you learn the story something else. And then hopefully it's something more interesting. You know, so you, so you do go out with an open mind, but you also go out um, with a plan. Like the saying goes, like, feature, uh, what is it, fortune favors the prepared mind. Absolutely. How many stories are in the works right now, like today, in this shop? I mean, I could show you in our story list. I mean, everybody's working on two or three things. And the way it goes is that for us to make a show, usually it takes two or three months to get together the stories. I mean, how do you decide what to give more time to? What warrants more time if it's not if the story isn't coming together? How do you know the difference between something that you need to drop and something that you should pursue? I mean, the time question is a different question, but with but with all the stories that we're doing, um, we're running at the material, but we understand that half the time or a third of the time it's not going to work, and so and so we're mindful of that at every step of the process, and often. When we pitch each other stories, the thing we say to each other is, like, this person has to deliver and they have to deliver on these points. They have to be able to tell this part of the story in an emotional way or be able to explain this question, which is really the question of the story. And sometimes you can kill at the end of the first interview. A very common thing is that the central character in the story, who the thing happened to, is just not a good talker, is not an emotional talker. And in that case, we think, like, who else can we go to? The spouse, the the sibling, the best friend, who can say, well, when they went through it, here's what they were feeling and here's what I saw. And they can just talk in a more emotional way, you know, just with the premise that like a story is an engine for feelings. And so the kind of interviewee who's the ideal interviewee in a story is somebody who can tell the story recounting and almost like refeeling the feelings of the experience at each stage. Because if you're in the business of of evoking feeling, it helps if the central character or somebody in the story has a feeling and can express feeling on tape. Um, without that, it's very hard to do a broadcast story. It, like something should be print. It doesn't need to be radio or, or documentary. So failing that, you kill it. I was going to ask you, do you ever get all the way through a story and then kill it? So often. There's a story that Aviva did where, where uh, just a couple months ago, it took weeks and we drafted through two full two-fold drafts with different sets of characters each time and probably invested, I don't know how many thousands of dollars in that before we killed it. And ha is that a black mark against you as a producer? Oh, my God, no, 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 no. It's funny because it didn't occur to me that that would be. Um, and then uh, and then, uh, and then, then uh, one of our new producers, Lena, like she went out and reported the hell out of it, a story, and then we killed it because the interviewees weren't any good. She's like, am I in trouble? I was like, no, you, that, that was success. You did your job. You know, like basically all you can do is play out the cards that exist. Like, like we kill a lot of things. And, and, and often, you know, and always when we kill it, like, like the point is, if this could be made into a story, the staff of This American Life can do it. Like we are the staff. We will, we will take any – if we can just get one piece of tape with feeling, we can make a story out of that. You just need really one minimum. Do people pitch you ideas like yeah. the stories all the time? Not all the time. 
but but people pitch. People do pitch. I mean, I think there's people have an idea of what a This American Life story is, and it's not necessarily a real idea. Do you know what I mean? Like they have their sense of what would make a good story, but it doesn't always necessarily translate. I mean, I mean, a good story, what is not a good story is like my friend and I are going on a road trip and we're going to interview a lot of people and see what we find. That is, that is really <laughs> not, that does not have enough of a question at the heart of it that you're trying to answer. You know, what is a good story is, um, you know, there's somebody in a situation and, and there's a plot to it and the person is a decent talker and, um, and, and the plot leads that person to have some thought about the world. That's, it could be as simple as that, you know. What is your media diet? I'm going to give you the Sarah Palin question. What do you read and listen to in the morning? Uh, I listen to The Daily every day. I think it's the best podcast out there. And the fact that they're doing narrative as news, I think is really interesting. It's interesting to compare the print versions of the stories to the audio versions, because the audio, they really understand. We're going to tell a story. So they don't start with what happened today. In fact, I've heard Lisa, who produces it, and Michael talk about how when they would first bring in reporters, the reporters would try to get to, here's what happened today, and be like, no, no, don't tell us what happened. We don't understand that yet. Tell us, like, let's start at the beginning. Hmm. Um, so I, I, I find that show to be such an impressive um, achievement and such a, like, a useful um, way to get, do, get the news for the day. I'm busy um, on, and on deadline often. So then beyond that, um, lately, there are a few podcasts that I listen to. Like, I'll, I'll get onto like a podcast for a while. Uh, for a while, I tried to like listen to all the different like liberal, anti-Trump, Pod Save America ones, and I felt like I wasn't getting enough information for the amount of minutes it was taking. So I stopped with those. It, I mean, yeah, and like, yeah, and then I like browse through Twitter, like, and then pull up whatever articles mm. seem interesting. So. The politics? It's terrible. As I say this, I feel like it's indefensible. <laughs> it's, it's very, very little. I don't know. It sounds like it's a, a lot. I mean, diet. yeah. I mean, there, was no. a fa- there was a phase where I was really consciously doing so much right-wing media. Um, you were following the, it. Yeah, yeah, going into the last election and coming off the last election. Um, and then I was just like, I don't have the time. You know, I just like, I've got stuff i got to write and do and make. Well, can I just ask about the political year coming up? Uh, do you... Are you going into it with, like, specific thoughts in mind of how you want to cover it or, you know? I mean, we've already started our coverage. Yeah, we no, already did an episode that yeah. I feel like was – I feel we're, we're, that was felt great to do. It was really fun to jump in. Um, no, I feel, I feel like it's, it's still too early, mm-hmm. you know? Like, it's still too early to, to figure out, like, where are the gaps in the coverage. We're just figuring that out. It does tie into this whole idea when you talked about how we're in a war right now with facts and non-facts. You talked about in the speech that one side is at war and the other side doesn't know it's at war. Do you think that's still the case? Yes. And how, what do you do about that? What do you do about No, I mean, what, what does mean, one me, do like, about I'm, I'm somebody like making a show, you know, like, 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 I'm, like I'm not a uh, media magnate, you know, with like hundreds of millions of dollars to throw at inventing like <laughs> programs or something. Like I think I think if someone were to be tackling it, you know, the product that they'd want to make is a product that would get to the people who um, who like President Trump, but but with facts. Create something that's so sparkly that calls out the 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 non factiness of of the of that media. 
Um, and then thinking about what is that sparkly thing. I mean, you already have like John Oliver doing his thing, and it's what does it get? A million, two million people watching. So it's not, and it doesn't reach the audience that right. Likes. It doesn't reach the people that you're talking about. No, I think you'd want something which has the ideals that conservatives have that shares their ideals, but just um, you know, is more interested in the facts. That's all. Okay, 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 you know, I don't know who the messenger for that is. Um, I'm trying to think of an example of it that already exists. You know, you 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 know, like you'd have to you'd have to find somebody who like that's the fire in the belly for sure. Yeah. With an audience. Yeah, somebody came with with an audience. Yeah. I mean, in a way, the this American Life audience is your biggest asset, right? I mean, you guys have the largest listenership of any radio show or any um, podcast, correct? In a weekly basis, yeah. How does the arrival of podcasting? How has that impacted? your life we have more money to spend on stuff mm-hmm. it's been incredible like the fact that we can you know assign somebody to a story and they can spend a year on it you know and we have other producers who, who can hire to like do the weekly work of getting the show on the air like and we can fly people anywhere and we can basically any story we can think of we have the money to do and uh, and that's because of podcasting and things go in cycles so do you give thought to the idea that okay this is this big we're riding this wave and I absolutely do <laughs> <laughs> of course yeah, yeah. And uh, like that's the other thing is like there's all this money floating around and you just think like, oh, wait, during this moment when it's popular, should we grab in some of that money so we have a security blanket for the future? And it's really hard to know how to navigate that. So back to journalism and our students. I mean, you're always super generous with giving advice and, you know, speaking from your perspective about the media landscape. What are, what are your words of wisdom for these young audio reporters? I mean, I feel like I, I'm called on to, to do this periodically, and I wish I had different advice each time, but I don't. Like, I think the most important thing is just don't wait. Just whatever it is you're thinking about doing, just make start making it. Find find somebody who can give you advice. It's not that expensive to do. Get a day job like a normal person. I was a temp secretary for years when I was learning to be a reporter. I'm an excellent secretary. Um and, uh, you know, just, like, do what you have to do to, to, like, keep yourself alive and just run out the thing you want to make and start to make it. Don't wait. Make the stuff you want to make now. No excuses. Don't wait for the perfect job. Don't wait. Don't wait. Don't wait. I want you to be bold. I want you to change things. Although I came before you, I want you to tear up what came before you. I am, no kidding, I really, truly envy you to be starting as journalists today, to be starting at this moment when journalism itself is changing so much, and to be part of remaking it into whatever it's going to become, to be reporting on these difficult times and these historic times. Okay. Best to you all, my new colleagues. You know, it's so interesting to listen back to this interview now in 2022. Since this was recorded, so much has happened. COVID-19 broke out. There's a new president in office. But much of what Ira said to the J School graduates and to us in the interview is still so relevant. It's really true. Lisa, what I loved about this interview is that Ira pulled back the curtain on his editorial process and his style. And we hear that resounded in so many of our favorite podcasts now, even in some of our DuPont finalists and winners. That's right. You know, I can think back a few decades in the DuPont archives 
before This American Life, when our winners in the audio category were reported and produced in a very standardized way. For example, here's a clip from NPR from the 1996 DuPont award-winning coverage of Republicans in Congress. Hour after hour through every vote, the traditional legislative fight continued. Republicans determined to press on with a 100-day deadline before them. And now we hear audio stories dealing with the same serious issues, told with more emphasis on the characters in play. There's still a central driving idea, but we hear more humanity in the tape, and we, we, I guess we hear the person more clearly. Yeah, here's an example from Radiolab from their 2021 winner, The Flag and the Fury, about the political fight to remove Confederate symbols from the Mississippi state flag. Hello. Hi, Representative Morgan? Yes. Your constituents, what is their voice? About 74% to leave it like it is. Mm. I just stopped at a convenience store on my way home, and four people in there told me these very words, don't let them change our flag. Wow. So it's that intimate tape that really pushes these stories these days to the next level. And in some sense, that's what makes them DuPont-worthy. It's all part of Ira's legacy. He's a god, I tell you, a radio (laughs) god. We worship at his altar. Well, that's all we have for you today. This episode has been brought to you by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and the Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by Emily Russell and audio engineered by Carlos Del Rosario. We'll be back next month with a conversation with a 2022 DuPont winner who covered one of the biggest news stories of the year in 2020, a story that is still making headlines today. Ooh, so much suspense. I can't wait to find out who it is. Until next time.